Oh, so much going on in the world, Steve. Yeah, I know. I got all these people trying to tell me that COBOL does pay very well on Twitter right now. I, I, <laughs> what was the context of that? Did you... More nuance you... than that. Uh, earlier today, a discussion with some people uh, over chat, uh, COBOL being like the meme of like COBOL being a good job you can get paid for heavily came up. And one of my like more high harm more harmless conspiracy theories that I believe in, not that I believe in harmful ones, but like a conspiracy theory that happens to be harmless and not something terrible is that COBOL is not actually a well-paid profession. It's just a thing people say. Because uh, like, if you try to go look for a high-paying COBOL job, they're like, oh yeah, it pays extremely well. Like we pay $50,000 a year, which outside <laughs> right. of the context of software is a great right. job, of course. Right. But this isn't the like... This isn't the like, don't learn Rails because the banks pay for COBOL programmers extremely well because there aren't any of them anymore. Like, I can't actually find evidence that that kind of job exists other than a couple unconnected, like, anecdotes, you know? But, like, if you, like, okay, the, the mean salary for a COBOL programmer in Austin is like $70,000 a year or whatever, for example. With and like, are you certain that this is not denominated in 1963 dollars, which would actually be real? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's, it's possible there's a local uh, hot dog joint here in the Bay Area. Did you ever go to Top Dog, Steve? You've been out here to go to the Top Dog. I have dog? not been to Top Dog, but maybe in a couple of weeks, whenever I'm out there, we'll. I don't know. I don't know that it's worth it. Top Dog is kind of an experience. So it is run by an ardent libertarian, an ardent libertarian of admirable purity that I feel <laughs> like that I feel like we were all once. You know, it's like wow, this is like sure. me when I was 13, just like straight up and. And then there's so there's kind of like this libertarian propaganda um, around the hot dog joint. And if you wish to pay for your hot dog in the currency from the last year in which silver was actual proper silver was used in the coinage, which I believe is 1969, then you can pay 1969 prices. So if you wish to pay for a hot dog with a dime, you can do so. It just has to be a 1969 dime that has silver in it. And so that may, I was, I'm wondering if the COBOL programmers, it's like, no, you get $30,000 a year in silver. It's actually, no, it is. It's a great gig. I feel like it's a good sign for this podcast that both of us had to immediately take a step back and qualify a statement halfway through like the first sentences that we both said. (laughs) (laughs) Is that, uh, wait a minute. Is that foreboding? I feel like I said, I think it's good foreboding. Yeah, yeah. It's good morning. Okay, so uh, we so um, I, the Adam is uh, attending to sick children. Adam very much wants to join us, but is uh, his household duties have called? His nurse duties have called, and Adam is, is of course uh, doing terrific work as a parent. There, they're they're attending to 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 the ill children in his household. So Adam, to a speedy recovery for all in your house. Um, okay, so we. Uh, we got here, so the, the, the tweet here is apropos of absolutely nothing <laughs> that we're talking about Fred Brooks's classic, but of course, it isn't actually apropos of absolutely nothing. In fact, it's, it's, it's the opposite of that. What, what is a podcast episode that is a subtweet, Steve? Do we have a, is that a sub episode? What do you call that when you have yeah, an entire I, podcast I, episode that is a subtweet? I mean, I mean, aren't most podcasts kind of sort of subtweets when you really oh. think about it? You know, yeah, that's that, that, that's true. I, so, okay, so, and I think I definitely some people were hitting me up about, like, what have you been, like, subtweeting so much about? 
And so just to be, just kind of have it out there. So uh, we're all kind of, uh, so it's actually not what we're going to talk about, but um, I, th this, this is actually important context. Um, so a, um, a company, Red Planet Labs, is going to announce uh, tomorrow at 10.59 a.m., a time that comes up quite a bit, that they will be uh, releasing a programming platform that promises 100x programmer productivity. And um, I think it's fair to say that I personally am skeptical, um, but that's not important right now, as Airplane might say. Uh, the, I, I am skeptical. I also, and by the way, I think there is absolutely going to be real technical depth to whatever they announce. I like there will be technical depth for certain. And the question is, is it a hundred X programmer productivity? And also, and I'm sorry, Steve, I just, I, I, I can't, I know I, I, I would like to think that I'm above this kind of a pot shop, but apparently I'm just not in the email that they sent out to folks in their email list. They believe it is the biggest paradigm shift in software engineering in at least 30 years, as if the internal debate was, is this the biggest paradigm shift in 30 years or 60 years? And they kind of split the baby with at least 30 years. So you know what? Who knows? It's possible. Um, but maybe right. it's but the, the, the important. The part to like bring this up is basically like, this is not what we're going to talk about for the episode, but this is what got us starting to talk about. Like, what does yes. 100x platform, like, how would you evaluate if this tr claim is true or false? How do you evaluate whether this uh, and, claim is true or false? Yeah, and, and that means you have to get into like, what does it mean to try to like enhance someone's productivity 100x? What does it mean for 100x? I also would like to say that 100x is the new 10x. I swear when I was coming up, this was 10x. And this paper only talk, Brooks's classic does talk about factors of 10, not factors of 100. We actually did a 10x on our 10x, literally. Uh, to get ten, to ten this. years, they did they did one ten x a year, and so it's going to be a hundred x total. That's right. Which is, I mean, I think it's fair to say, like step function in the software engineering paradigm. And uh, you know, as, as someone had kind of mentioned this, that um, the uh, like, hey, this is uh, you should go back and reread uh, No Silver Bullet. And had you, Steve, had you read No Silver Bullet back in the day? No. I was required to read it as part of one of my earliest college classes. Uh, and like, I hadn't seriously revisited it since then. I mean, obviously there's sort of like the memeified way that we take a lot of these texts and then kind of like, you know, talk about their conclusions without going back and reading it again. Um, but like I hadn't until this morning uh, when we were talking about this, I hadn't like revisited it at all. It, I was in the exact same boat. I had not revisited. One thing we do need to revisit just quickly because Ashley's asking in the chat uh, about Split the Baby. And now I'm very concerned that Split the Baby is not enough of a popular idiom to be for me to be using it as casually as I'm using it. Is, well, it, it I thought you were mixing metaphors between splitting the difference and like the parable of the judgment of Solomon or whatever. I, I think that's that right. And it, it, yeah, Steve, thank you. And thank you for being willing to chalk up to basically just linguistic incompetence. Um, the... Uh, the oh the, 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 the baby in the bathwater splitting the baby in the bathwater yeah I kind of had split the difference and but I feel like we talked but splitting the baby is like the compromise that's not a compromise I don't know it's it, 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 all right it's I, I think I need to stop dissecting this let's just say it was it was not the the, the 
the, the, bone the best roll. way to explain a mixed metaphor is to mix even more metaphors in there. You start, you know, making a good <laughs> metaphor stew, and then everything is very comprehensible. L- a little metaphor bouillabaisse, a jambalaya, as Adam would say. We got a proxy Adam in absentia. I believe that Adam would say that it is a metaphor jambalaya. So Adam, hope we've done right by you by representing the jambalaya. Um, so yeah, Steve, I was in the exact same boat. I think I'd read this, like I guess as an undergrad. I know I read the Mythical Man Month like some number of years into practicing as a software engineer, but I basically had not gone back and read it since. And just so just read it effectively recently with all this coming up. Uh, what'd you think on the reread? What was your take? So I think that this is classic Fred Brooks in the sense that when I read his stuff again now, it is like so on the money for so much of it. It feels like contemporary, but then there's just suddenly an example <laughs> or a detail that's like clearly it's, like, it's very old right. and it sticks out like even more than it would otherwise. And so it kind of right. like, it's, it's a very like emotionally jarring like thing to read because like so much of it seems like it could have been talked about last week. And then he's like, well, of course, you know, there's not enough screen room to see more than one document on a screen so like you know nobody's really going to be able to do that and you're like wait hold on a second like i thought we were talking about how ai is not going to like make programming better uh you know at the time or whatever so that's he is like a time traveler that actually doesn't want to get caught but a a pater like trips up every once in a while and says something that reveals his true origin like wait a minute are you from the the, and mythical man about this this way too so that's asking in the chat is it worth the read I do think it's worth the read, but you definitely have to factor out the bit on secretaries. Do you remember this, Steve? Or there's like, there's a whole chapter on like what the secretary should do. And I'm like, yeah, we don't, okay, no, we do, no, that's not, that's that's not traveling as well. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think part of also like in terms of is something worth it to read, like it's, it's like 15 and a half pages. You can read it relatively quickly. Uh, so I think it's worth reading just because it's, it's not like you're like, is it worth watching all the extended Lord of the Rings movies, right? Like you're not, ta- you're not putting in a lot of effort for what you're getting out here. So I think that the, the worth it is very clearly on the side of, yes, you should read this. Yeah, I think it's worth being aware of. I think that this essay is actually, I, again, it didn't like, I, I just don't remember it really sticking with me. Um, but the, the essay, I think the essay is arguably like the best part of mythical. I mean, if you're really going to read one part of mythical man month, like this essay is not bad. It travels pretty well. And there are some things you just like, get like, wait a minute. Okay. Did, it, it, did you just refer to Constantinople? We don't actually call it that anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, but it's, uh, I think it, it broadly travels pretty well. You know, I was looking for, um, other kind of discussions online and actually, it's funny, I found a, a podcast called The Future of Coding, which I'd, I had uh, in my queue before but not listened to. And they did a really in-depth discussion of it that I enjoyed. It was super long, like four hours long. Um, and I got to say, like, I, would, I was starting to listen to it as I'm in like Costco buying a bunch of stuff for a Scout barbecue yesterday. And uh, the they talk about like you know well it's the first podcast of the year we should make predictions I'm thinking to myself hey we make predictions that's cool another podcast makes predictions and then they're like yeah you know I was listening to the oxide friends and they make predictions I'm like hey wait a minute that's just what they're talking about that's really neat so future of coding folks thanks for the shout out and uh, really enjoyed um, listening to your podcast as well and the discussion there um, it got very philosophical so. Steve, I don't want you. I I think of you as more than just my go-to for philosophy. I want you to know that. I just I don't want you to feel I insulted that 
Exactly. That you're um, you're not just the, the 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 philosophy role player around here, but it's not just when your co-host is sick and you need a philosophy person. It's um, <laughs> more than that specific circumstance. You know, I, I knew that was going to come up. Look, look. Okay, I uh, okay. It's true, but here we are. Look, here we are. Let's just make the best of it. You know, so, so it, it, they were really into kind of the the Aristotelian uh, dichotomy between uh, the the accidental and the essential. And as a kind of the thrust of the paper, and I didn't quite infer that as the thrust of the paper, but I don't know. But then it did cause me to kind of go back and reread it more closely. Um, can you give us some key philosophies to you yeah. do that on demand? So uh, this is not exactly what they said, but it's close enough. And I think it's a good way to ease into it. So I'm going to start slightly somewhere else. Uh, the uh, uh, Larry Wall has this idea called the waterbed theory of complexity. Now, I don't know if you've ever mm. been around a real waterbed, but if you push onto one side of a waterbed, it makes the other part rise up, right? You have a bunch of water inside of basically a giant balloon. And so you the, the like amount of cushion doesn't disappear. It just gets displaced into a different area. And so Larry like really strongly believed that with complexity, there's like uh, essential complexity and accidental complexity, which this also makes reference to. I'm not sure if he got it from here uh, or if it's just a you know similar thing or whatever, but the idea is kind of like there's there's some parts of problems that are just, they just are complex and it's not actually possible to simplify them. It turns out that the real world is a messy place and complexity exists. And therefore, you know, you can't really get rid of that complexity. You can only move it around into different places. And so I see this come up a lot when discussing, uh, for example, like why some people talk about why they don't like the Go programming language is because Go kind of says, you know, like we can introduce this simplicity. And a lot of people will say, well, I don't actually believe that it's reducing the complexity anywhere. It's just moving it to other places. And so, you know, you get endless of arguments. And so um, I thought this section of No Silver Bullet was really interesting because, you know, they, they also talk about this general idea of like there's sort of this there's parts of a problem that are irreducibly complex. And I, I liked specifically, not just because I went and saw Oppenheimer three freaking times and Einstein is part <laughs> of that, but like they, they make reference to this uh, Einstein quote. Let me grep for this real quick. Cause I should, I say that before. Yeah. So like Einstein repeatedly argued that there must be simplified explanations of nature because God is not capricious or arbitrary, uh, but no such faith com comforts the software engineer, which I thought was uh, you know, pretty solid, like, uh, you know, and so they get into this kind of like, where can we, if we're trying to simplify things, like, can we even simplify stuff and all that? And I thought that was, uh, I thought that was pretty, pretty good. Yeah, I thought that was great. And it kind of gets to the, I mean, I think Brooks is, to me, Brooks is fundamental thrust is against those that kind of offer these single solutions, because the, his kind of point is, if you don't attack the essential complexity, and you only attack the accidental complexity, the upper bound on what you can do from a productivity perspective is the elimination of all accidental complexity, which is not enough to give you a factor of 10 increase unless you're spending 90% of effort on accidental complexity, which I thought was like, I mean, that's a, yeah. a good point. It's kind of like an Amdahl's law style argument, which I, I continually cite is like the most important and useful thing I ever learned in my computer science degree is Amdahl's uh, law, which is. Well, um, yes, getting Amdahl. Yes, absolutely. Um, the And I actually, you know, it caused me to reflect, I'm sure you as well, Steve, in terms of like, all right, so take something like Rust. Rust really eliminates a lot of the accidental complexity. 
And you are left with the essential complexity. In fact, you're like staring the essential complexity like dead in the eyes, um, yeah. I felt. I think on Rust's I, best days, that is true. And <laughs> it's not always, you know, that's the aspiration, right? Like, I don't think right. it always lives up to that. But that is that is where a lot of the complexity does come from. Is like, well, just turns out this domain has some irreducible complexity into it. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, even when you think about like something super basic, like how does this uh, function return an error? And the, you know, Rust really forces you to, to confront that accidental complexity um, and, and kind of, I, you, you've got to boil it down to the essential complexity. Like you're not allowed to actually like, no, we're not going to use Sentinel values. We're going to actually have some types and you're actually going to do this in a way that you actually have to go deal with it. it actually says you know, strengths totally. Oh my God. And there's so many times when, when I, especially when learning Rust, when Rust felt really, really pedantic. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ, Rust. It's like, come on. I mean, it's like, you know, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you're technically right, but geez, can't we just like, can't we let this one slide? And then you realize like, no, no, this is actually forcing me to deal with what I'm actually doing and the consequences of my actions and what is the essential complexity here. So I don't know, it, it did I, cause me to kind of rethink it. I think it also feeds into a lot of the beginner anxiety when learning Rust because when you know virtually every function that you call returns a result, uh, and you feel like, oh God, do I got to figure out how to handle all these things? You know, there's sort of like a kind of almost want to make those like bell curve memes where you know where you start off, you're just calling unwrap on everything because that is like I am overwhelmed by this complexity. I don't you know need to think about it. I'm just going to blow up on any error whatsoever. And then kind of when you get to be an expert, you're like, yeah, just toss a question mark on it because I don't need to handle the actual error here, and I don't care what kinds of errors they are. Just like pass it up the stack. And then there's kind of the middle area where you're learning, and you're like, I didn't realize that uh, changing the current directory of a process could fail. Like I totally, I didn't, I didn't know that was like a thing that could happen. And now I do. And like, Oh God, there's like 15 different ways that this function can fi fail and, you know, figuring all that stuff out. So, uh, yeah. So I think it's, and I think that like, that's where a lot of the folks that are trying to either improve Rust directly or come up with successor languages to manage this complexity. Cause there, there are some folks who do believe that Rust's complexity here is not actually accidental uh, or is not actually uh, essential and have several strategies for trying to reduce it. And I'm excited to see how those like develop uh, further on in the future. Uh, so we'll see, but yeah, totally. Yeah. That's interesting. And cause I, I think you can get like a kind of that, that interface between the accidental and the essential you can, there's definitely debate to be having, which is which, but I also feel that like at the extremes, it's very clear that like, no, no, this is accidental or this is essential. And I feel that what Brooks is addressing is like the, the things that are going to really take a big swing at that accidental complexity are the things that are going to kind of hit this stuff that is indisputably accidental. And Definitely. I mean, and, and there are... To like, to, to make yeah. the argument Brooks kind of makes in some parts here, if you made the borrow checkers trivial for every programmer, Rust would still have things you would need to learn about it. It's not like you would be, yes. it would be a hundred times easier to learn Rust if the borrow checker was just trivial. Like there would still be a bunch of different things that, you know, depending on what your background is from, you may not have dealt with before or like all sorts of other things. So like even that would not necessarily achieve, you know, the goal of an order of magnitude improvement in ability to learn Rust. Totally. And I think that, and actually the thing that impeded my own ability to learn Rust is I was trying to port something from C to Rust. Something I rather... I was importing it per se. I had implemented it in C, and I wanted to to re-implement it in Rust. And I had, I mean, it's, I was truly latching on to my accidental complexity, 
and trying to implement it the same way I had done it in C, namely with a doubly linked list. And Rust, Rust does not want you to do that. Rust is like, you need to leave that accidental. That is accidental complexity, my friend. <laughs> and you must leave it in the past now. That is, we, we need to get to the essential complexity of your problem. And we need to get, you almost want to compile a message that tries to coax someone out of their accidental complexity. But I was really latched on to this implementation detail that in hindsight was accidental complexity, even though I don't think I would have thought it at the time. You know, and I thought that was like sure. what was so eye-opening about Rust. It's like, oh, wait a minute, that actually is accidental complexity. And what is the essential complexity? What am I trying to do? And what would I do were I not concerned about performance? And I put that in quotes because that Rust program outperformed the C program, which is totally surprising. Um, but I, I just think it's really interesting to kind of like take the like look back on Rust as taking on, in particular, this accidental complexity. But on the essential complexity, I mean, it's not like you're on your own, but like you know, <laughs> kind of are, you know, it's like, I, I, I don't know that Rust really uh, aspires even to take on that essential complexity. I think it, it really aspires to get all of the accidental complexity out of the way. Is that, is that a misread? I am unsure. I definitely think that some people would think that. I don't know to what degree it's being accomplished if that is an explicit goal, but also I have been sort of out of the loop for long enough that I'm not entirely sure what current leadership's thinking is on this topic, exactly. Um, I do think it's really interesting that we sort of, I mean, obviously we latch onto Rust because it's a thing that we both love. And, you know, this is the Oxide podcast after all. But like the number one thing that Fred Brooks is like, so I was gonna, I was gonna ask you what you thought the like most jarring example and the most current day example things would be in this paper. Oh, and oh, I, I think one of them to like half before, before you get into your picks, just to transition <laughs> so we start talking about Rust stuff, like the number one thing under the hopes for silver uh, is ADA and other high language advances. And I think this one kind of walks the line because it's very old because it's sort of like, we'll see if this ADA thing shapes out, shakes out or not. Um, which, you know, we know now the degree to which ADA has shaken out or not. Um, but like you could today write the same section and turn the examples into Rust. And I'm pretty sure I've like read it as a Hacker News comment before. And so it is like very interesting to me that, uh, you know, one of my favorite, maybe not literal silver bullets, but let's just say, you know, 60% silver seriously wounds werewolves instead of, you know, <laughs> totally getting rid of them is one of the things that Brooks is like, nah, Totally worthless. In terms of ADA itself, or yeah. the- Well, he says ADA and other high level languages. Like his argument again is this 80-20 argument where like yeah. he basically said like going from assembly language to structured programming was the 80% increase in like programming languages as a way to tackle these problems. Um, I forget- But like, he does, he does actually, he ends up being yeah. in terms of- talk about object-oriented programming, he thinks that object-oriented programming does do this ultimately. That it's not a silver bullet, but it is a hope for silver in that it actually... So I think he's he's kind of got both sides here in terms of like, I think the ADA thing... Okay, so hot take. I think he may be taught, even though he says ADA and other high-level languages, I think that may be a reaction to ADA itself. And I think that ADA hurt itself by being too preachy. I think AD, ADA... And I think you know, I think we all have kind of a natural resistance to the the Rust evangelism strike force and people talking about you know rewriting everything in Rust and kind of the the damage that it can do when something is kind of being sold as a magic bullet. And yeah. Ada was sold that way. 
and definitely observatory programming was sold that way. I mean, it was absolutely sold that way in the nineties, especially. Uh, and, and then Java was absolutely, absolutely sold that way. Java was the magic bullet and, you know, Java was really important in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, but the, uh, I think that it was a mistake to think of it as a magic bullet because it didn't actually, it, 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 it doesn't, it didn't actually solve all problems. So yeah, I thought the, so I was wondering to what degree it's ate itself. He clearly, um, you know, he did a papers we love. I don't know if you caught any of that. Uh, so one thing that is funny, I got, did you watch any of that by any chance? I did not uh, have the chance okay. to watch any of that. So, okay. So I'm just going to tell you, so you can make your own informed choice. You will be eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil by watching that. <laughs> I, have you, have you ever heard Fred books speak before? Uh, I don't believe so. Oh, oh, I don't. I, I would say that if you, if you're not sure, you definitely haven't. The okay. guy has got a crazy syrupy Southern accent, like nice. super syrupy, which is like, there's a level in which it's, and he has, and there's no love lost between him and Ada. That thing is like recorded when he's like 88 and he is like still going back for more with Ada. He's still just like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So he definitely is like, Ada definitely rubbed him the wrong way. He also, there's also a really good and interesting point about that. He's like, you know, in the responses to my essay, I noted there were many people that said, I have a silver bullet over here, but nobody said this is the silver bullet I'm using over there. I know I sound like I'm an antebellum. <laughs> That's wonderful. Like- Honestly, that makes the whole podcast already as far as I'm concerned. Oh, it is. But he, I, but I thought it was actually a really interesting point that he was making that like, hey, that's funny. Nobody is talking about the silver bullet of someone else's that they're using. Oh, it's always yeah. your silver bullet. Huh. <laughs> that's it's noted. it's always the snake oil snake oil salesman and never the snake oil affiliate <laughs> <User>. marketing. <laughs> um. Totally. It's never the snake oil testimonial, is it? It's always the <laughs> uh it, it is. It's always the same. Well and I think that like that is like part of the issue is that like there we have so much abstraction that we are and we get mired by it and frustrated by it that somehow all of it does leave us amenable to oversimplified answers and sometimes those are oversimplified answers that we think that we have found like i have found that this this thing that has been important for me is going to be revolutionary for the universe it's like well it's actually important for you on this problem but maybe it's not as revolutionary uh, I, I don't, there's something about software that does leave us leave leave us kind of amenable to this kind of stuff. You wake up one day and suddenly you've got a Fuzzbiz Enterprise Edition. I don't know if you've seen this before or not. I pasted it into the chat, but it's like, how could we write Fizzbuzz in the most like enterprise Java way possible? Um, like, there's like seven config files and like yada yada yada. It's really it's really something. Um, that is that is pretty funny. Uh, hold on, I'm trying to get you up here, and uh, sorry, I, I want to get want to get other people's take on this as well. Um, the um, so Steve, you were asking about kind of like the in the specific technologies because it is amazing that some of the stuff does feel super current. Um, so okay, one thing he talks about as like the I think this paper is misperceived to be pessimistic. When he's like, I'm not saying that the improvement's not possible. I'm saying it's not going to be a single thing 
that is that that yields that improvement. Right. Um, and in particular, because to me, like what this is really before, and the thing that what this predates that totally changed software is the combination of open source, the internet, and distributed version control. I argue that mm-hmm. those three things together did fundamentally deliver a big multiplier. Is it 100x? Is it 1,000x? Is it 10x? I don't know, but it's big. It ain't small. Um, Keep in mind that at the time that he wrote the essay, he also was no longer writing software for IBM. He had already transitioned away from being a professional software engineer to being a professional educator. So yeah, like, that's true. the things that he's talking about is also from uh, some time prior. And he put a, like, a decade-long... Um, proviso on on the prediction so he, he was explicitly saying yeah within the next 10 years we're not going to get a 10x improvement um but i i would note that i think that the the real interesting insight is the like um just the ratio right is like is is what we're doing right now nine tenths accidental if it's you know less than nine-tenths accidental complexity, then there is no way that we can get a 10x improvement because there's not, you know, 90% of work that we can just throw away, which, um, you know, it's... I think the thing that I was kind of curious about reading it was, like, um, thinking about it from the lens of a single programmer versus a team of programmers or a company of programmers and where the complexities lie in the in the communication between uh individuals um because the you know nine tenths um likely uh bears out over the course of an individual but over a team um there's some real interesting stuff at play totally and that's a very good point and i think things that allow people to collaborate more easily can get to these big multipliers. I mean, that is what like open source internet distributed version control together. They allow for a much better collaboration. And Ian, to your point, you know, we talked about it when we had uh, David Crespo on and, and Justin about how the open API and using Progenitor allowed them to much more easily, they didn't have to guess about what the actual specification was because the specification is derived from the implementation. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that's a that's a good point in terms of like the all the complexities that come from operating on a team, which and so Ian, do you think that uh, of these kind of uh, purported magic bullets from the past, um, how many of the ones that have been, uh, how many of them have kind of addressed that element of it, that kind of team complexity element? Oh, um, I think that there's been a few. Like um, I would note, like in the paper. Uh, Brooks talks about buy versus build and the fact that over time you'll um the best thing to do is likely to buy a module off the shelf um and use it rather than write it yourself because of just how expensive it is to produce software and that uh you know he missed at the time um oh, in the yeah. You yeah, know, the, the, breaking the, open source in 1986, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he's also still talking about the next decade, so he was pretty, you know, on the on the money there. But, like, in the years since then, yeah, I mean, open source has definitely made it significantly easier to uh, buy at 
um, you know, zero uh, monetary cost on day one <laughs> as an open source module off the shelf that can do some of what you what uh, you want, and that and the assembly of those modules is kind of a big part of how we write software today, um, by and large, you know. So Ian, you kind of got me thinking here about like this essential accidental complexity, if you will, of the team dynamic, which is this really important complexity in the construction of software. And as I'm just like thinking about like, what are these big, big, big step functions? They are things that either deliberately or either essentially or accidentally do address that complexity. In other words, like the the presence of open source internet distributed version control actually allows us to meaningfully collaborate as a species in our fight for the light cone against the AGI. Um, but the, the it allows us to actually meaningfully collaborate. And then I think that the you know the, the obviously distributed version control just allowing for much easier collaboration. And I just I almost wondered it's like if you're gonna have a maybe off my rocker here, but if like you're going to have a big multiple on productivity, it's got to have a kind of a, a collaborative angle to it. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, it's got to be a way for um, multiple engineers to to be more productive working together, um, or be able to elide the challenges in um, relying on another team to do work on your behalf and you know erecting um api boundaries between those teams and the the efforts of those teams such that um you don't have to know as much about what's going on behind the scenes um and you know there's things today that are incredibly effective at, at that like s3 is a amazing api for um determining for, for like abstracting over storage um, you don't need to know that your um, your uh, files are now stored on, you know, a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand or a million hard drives. Um, that's all kind of hidden behind the API, and all that effort is hidden behind the API. And I feel like you know that's an extremely effective example of like how this can work um, to be able to allow a small group of programmers to um, deliver software uh, capability to a significantly larger audience. And yeah, um, that's it. I, sus I suspect yeah. that stuff like that is where, where there's some real interesting gains, particularly in this, uh, like that's in the large. And I kind of wonder how much of that can be scaled down to like within an individual company when you have, um, you know, teams relying on platform teams to deliver capabilities and how you can get those um, you know, delivered more effectively. Yeah, and that's a really interesting example because with S3, S3 took a kind of radical approach that anyone versed in storage would have counseled probably against, which is like, yeah, we're not going to actually allow for partial updates. We're not going to allow for partial writes, which would have just seem like, what? Like, no, any storage system has to allow for partial, partial updates. And they're like, eh, we don't think so. And that was a big gamble and a big win. And it's interesting to think about S3 as one of those technologies. Steve, one of the ones that I've got to ask you about, because I think like one of the ones that I've seen in my lifetime, I think Rails was a, was a really big deal and right. was a really big step function. And it, it, I mean, I mean you it was a big enough step function, I basically quit my job. 
Like that was like, yeah. I was like, I, I mean, I was currently at, I was currently, that's pretty funny. At the time I, I was at an internship uh, writing PHP and it was fine, but I saw rails and saw rails happening. And when I brought that stuff to like work and was like, Hey, we should like consider doing these things. And they were like, no. And I was like, okay, uh, okay I'm going to do something else instead. And I went and I started a startup so I could write rails. Yeah, like, that was like, and it was extremely fast and like so much easier to get going. Uh, you know, I got a lot farther than I would have at the time, especially the 2009. So, you know, uh, a lot of the current technologies didn't really even exist at that point. And, and rails was super fantastic. I was going to ask what year it was because the DHH video is 2005. Is that right? I think it's 2005. Yeah. And I actually wanted to go back. I didn't get a chance to rewatch that video before today because I. It is I difficult remember. to find on the internet, but I can. Which is crazy. That's like, it's, a, that's it's a part of our crazy, history. It's crazy, but I, yeah, I. Oh, no, is it not? Is it, uh, oh, oh is, it, is it a milkshake duck? Is it, what, what's It's not on? a milkshake duck thing. I, I will just put it this way. I've heard a rumor that it's for personal reasons for David to take it down and he doesn't really like people watching it these days. I won't get into the details because they were rumors said to me and I don't want to say anything, but uh, my understanding is it was deliberately made hard to find. Um, these days, but it is like basically, you know, the, the magic of it at the moment, like you don't even necessarily need it's, it's, it's almost boring to watch because rails dominated the space so heavily and won so thoroughly, like conceptually, obviously, I don't really think rails is still dominant as a technology, but like the stuff that it brags about are things that we take for granted today when building web applications. And so when he shows like how awesome it is that you can do this it it like doesn't have the same emotional resonance just because like yeah of course of course you can do that um so i that's interesting because the thing i was trying to remember first of all i remember where i was when i watched that video really big deal when that thing came out it was one of the youtube was still really young i mean it was only like it may have been the first year of youtube even i mean it was super early yeah. youtube and it was the first time that i had a demonstration of a technology over youtube and it was arresting. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh my God, this, it was like, it was, was it 14 minutes long or something like that? Yeah. yeah 15 uh, minutes long. And pasted it into the chat. Oh, nice. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So it's DHH and, and his agents are going to have to work a little harder to hide <laughs> it from, hide it from oxide and friends. So yes, yeah, so it's 15 minutes. And, um, the, it, it is the thing that I was trying to remember. And actually maybe if, if you've seen this recently, maybe you can recall, but I don't know to what degree the, the the tenor of the video was I have revolutionized all of programming versus I have built a block engine in 15 minutes. I just remember being like, like here is a very useful approach for this kind of problem that, by the way, happens to be a problem that a lot of people have. But I don't remember being sold to me as this is going to revolutionize everyone's productivity. It was more just like, hey, here's how I did this. And it was really effective. Um, and... An important thing to understand about David is that he does not care if other people use his thing. Like he wants to yeah, tell you, I haven't rewatched it recently, but like I would not expect him to be saying like, you should also use this thing because Rails is first and foremost his project for him to do with as he likes and is written for him and for his taste. Everybody else is incidental. So I, I would expect it to be like, I have built this thing that makes building websites incredibly fast and I'm going to be using it, but I don't think, I would not expect it to be a salesman as you would expect from someone making a use my framework please today um, because I don't really think he cared then or cares now if people use Rails. 
I got to say that is pretty common for these things that are these big step functions. They, that is kind of the, the, their genesis, right? I mean, that's, I mean, that's Graydon and Rust. It's not like use Rust. It's kind of like, hey, this is the, I mean, the Graydon's presentation from Mozilla, was it 2000, when is that, 2012? At early? 10. Um, 2010, it's kind of like, here are some interesting ideas I'm experimenting with. I mean, it's just like the way it, it, it's, it, I feel like Unix was designed to test the file system. I mean, I think, you know, not to, not to, put myself in this kind of hallowed hall, but I guess that's exactly what I'm about to do. I mean, for Dtrace, like we ultimately designed Dtrace for us. Like it was ultimately like, this is the thing that we are, like I actually know this is effective because I'm using it to do my job. And if I would love other people to use it, but I also kind of kind of like, if they don't, that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm happy. (laughs) And I mean, this has got me reflect, as you can imagine, reflecting on Dtrace as well in terms of like the, because I think what Dtrace does for debugging, which is a very narrow problem or a, a narrow subdomain, is Dtrace eliminates all of the, most of the accidental complexity in debugging and leaves you with pure distilled essential complexity that does not necessarily make the problem easy. And so one of the things we heard early on in Dtrace is like, oh, I'll put Dtrace, I'll, like, I'll, I'll use Dtrace on this problem. It's like, well, you can use Dtrace to debug the problem, but you are ultimately going to need to have, like you are going to actually have to understand the problem. Like Dtrace can actually help you understand it. All it can do is make it easy for you to phrase questions of the system. It doesn't actually tell you what questions to ask, which is honestly the much harder bit. And I, I kind of feel, which is part of the reason like, why I would never talk about like a 100x gain because it's like it is an elimination of a bunch of tedium for debugging, but your ability to debug the problem is going to both have your ability to debug the problem, uh, unfortunately. What question to ask is actually uh, why Brooks in Noah Silver Bullet says AI is not going to help programmers. Um, that because... section felt chillingly current, didn't it? Yeah. The hard I mean, thing about was, building software is deciding year, what to say, not saying it, right? This was a year before the the next AI winter as well, so it was. Yeah. I think the tide was was like turning against um, against the the current state of the art of AI at the time. The, the first snowflakes were falling from the uh, the late eighties AI winter. Uh, so we got um, Tom and Alex here, so I want to get them in. Um, uh, Alex, actually, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll start with you because uh, you, you had actually, um, when we were talking about No Silver Bullet in our internal chat last week, you had mentioned that that you'd read it, and um, it sounds like more recently than than Steve and me, um, and it uh, definitely had an impact as the way you were thinking about problems. Could you, could you elaborate a little bit on that? All right, now Steve, now we use you to debug. Do we know that yeah. Alex? So is- cur- the current state is Alex is not muted, but is not getting audio from their thing into Discord because the little green ring does not appear at all. I mean, now you're being muted again, so you wouldn't, but I, I would be debugging whatever your connection is to Discord itself, Alex. All right. Uh, we'll go to uh, we'll go to Tom, and then Alex will come back to the here. Yeah, exactly. Tom. Yeah, I, I posted in the chat, but I when I was first looking for this paper, which I'm ashamed to say I never heard of before, I found this weird version hosted at UCSF with a, a different productivity equation. And it's about oh. groups where it goes down as the square of the number of people. 
but it has all these. I posted this eco equation. It's got these very weird constants in it with no explanation of where it came from. <laughs> and when was strange. yeah, and and then and Tom, so when was that? And when and did this kind of resonate with with your experience up to that point? Well, yeah, clearly productivity goes down with large numbers of people, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know when or where this paper came from. But it's a version of, of Brooks's paper. That's interesting. I also wanted, and, yeah. wanted to say it, and I got to meet Fred Brooks back in about 1980. Oh, wow. He was, he was a character even then. Um, in his office, he had a big row of timers, mechanical timers. And whenever he switched what he was working on, he'd hit the appropriate timer so he could try to keep track of his own productivity. Wow, he was like a, a tailorist for himself. Yeah, it was pretty strange. But also the incredibly sugary southern accent. So, Okay, did you, th did you feel that I was overplaying that? I mean, do you feel... No, that, no. It, but, uh, it is possible. I, 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 was, I was a young whippersnapper at the time, so I was just in awe that I got <laughs> to meet the guy at all. So. It's possible the discrepancy is because the version you found is su supposedly a direct reprint of the uh, IEEE Computer Volume 20, Number 4, April 1987, whereas the version that we linked is reproduced from the Mythical Mammoth Anniversary Edition with four new chapters, 1995. Uh, and so I wonder if this is a modification that Fred made um, in between versions or something. Uh, or is like, yeah, different versions of a preprint because it's like it itself is reprinted from some conference in 1986 or whatever. So the the other thing I want to mention, which which he dances around some, is this whole specification is the hard part. And I've always maintained that if if you could formally specify something, you can just compile the specification. Right. <laughs> right. It, it seems like people don't say that directly enough, but that's kind of the whole point of software. Yeah, is to kind of be in that that gray area. Uh, when he talks about, I do think it's interesting in terms of he talks talking about conformity as a, a as a constraint um, and how uh, the conformity is is a can't even remember refers to it as axonal complexity or central complexity, but it's complexity at any rate that a magic bullet, silver bullets are going to have a hard time addressing the, the conformity requirement, and I feel like those have only grown over time those conformity requirements have, got, have, have gotten a lot more complicated over time it's a day-to-day -day engineering thing you know the the principle of least surprise is you should conform conform with what other people are doing or else it just slows them down yeah and actually tom as long as you hear so we the i would two other kind of points that i'd like to make about this kind of put it in its 1986 context that people may be i think confused by um, one is the, he talks about rapid prototyping as if it's a totally new idea because it is a totally new idea in 1986. <laughs> uh, there was a, there was, it, things were very, very waterfally. And uh, the idea that you would, and I think he talks about this in, I think, is it in the update for No Silver Bullet where he, he talks about how the, the, the big insight that he had is that software is grown, not built. Um, Steve, was that in the original essay or is that in the update? That may be in I, the, yeah. Sure. Yeah, if you didn't read that hey, recently. Alex, Alex mentioned in the chat uh, his audio is not working, but he wanted to say that uh, just so we get it in the actual recording podcast, 
that you think the essential thing of Brooks is the quote that I just said, the hard thing about building software is deciding what to say, not saying it. I think that that statement generalizes to everything about the construction of software. That's why communication systems, collaboration tools, et cetera, can help so much because they help people decide what they need to say. So That's a very good hopefully, point. Uh, hopefully Linux Audio will work for you in the future, Alex, but thanks, thanks for completing the comment. <laughs> Linux, Linux Audio, essential complexity or accidental complexity? <laughs> We have like uh, a, a half an hour social meeting at Oxide and almost every morning somebody joins and like can't talk for some reason. And then when they finally get to talk, they're like, sorry, it was Linux audio. My bad. So uh, common, common issue. Says the Windows user, like, look, I know. Hey, I, wasn't, is- I wasn't saying it. I was just acting smug. I wasn't going to go so far <laughs> as to be like, my audio always works. Uh, I was actually saying it. It was merely dripping from every word. I, was I, I, I will say that once I switched giving presentations, like, oh my God, this projector just works now. It's like, like I went from like, I literally handed someone who runs a theater in Denver, like if w- some weird Linux person comes in, hand them this piece of paper and I wrote the like command line to set the freaking like X settings to be the same as their weird refresh rate on their projector or whatever. And to go from that to just like, I plug the computer in and it projects things has been uh, very nice. So there are obviously lots of other limitations to Windows, but uh, multimedia working by default is not one of the problems. It may be a 100Xer in terms of your your projector productivity. Moving from Pulse Audio to Linux or to Windows is a default sound, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a big bump. So, and Tom, when this came out, oh, so then the other thing I wanted to say because I think that this came up in the uh, either either in the revisiting of it. So Brooks revisited the paper ten years later. It's really pretty interesting. Um, but he when he, I, and maybe I think it's actually no no sorry it is in this paper because he talks about like kind of the great hopes for the future, and one that I think people have latched onto and is this idea of great designers is finding folks who can really uh, develop great software. And I think you've really got to take that one in its 1986 context. And Tom, we'd love to get your perspective on this and feel free to disagree. But software really was very subservient to hardware for a very long time. And it was not its own domain. Um, Most uh, universities did not have a computer science program until the very late 70s, 80s, or 90s in some cases. And so the it's not thought of as its own domain. And so the idea that you would actually specialize in software does act, it is kind of ridiculous in 1986. And that's part of the reason why he's expressing it like it's a novel idea to develop to actually like focus on this as its own craft. There, there was a a lot of professional software recognition in the mid 70s, and. Uh, yeah. But Tom, but but Tom, what is your degree? Your degree is not in computer science, surely. Uh, it is double E and computer science. They were the same. Double E computer science. So, all right. Yeah. In all right, all right. I, I stand corrected. Which, it's all right. Which I which I think they added. I'm trying to figure out when they added computer science to the double E name, but it was early seventies. Yeah, I mean, totally I, I graduated. I graduated in '78 and went to work for Amdahl, and you know. The mythical man month was the first required reading there. Oh, that's interesting. So you would read it when you arrived at Amdahl. Yeah, it was it was the Bible. Huh. And did Amdahl and Brooks Brooks cites this incremental programming uh, reference from nineteen seventy one. So that's kind of how far back some of that goes. Right. And this and this is in the paper. Incremental development. Grow, not build software. Which I think actually is, that is important. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a really important insight. Well, I also love the fact, I mean, he, Steve even talks about Demo Day when he says uh, the morale effects are startling. Enthusiasm jumps when there's a running system, even a simple one. And I actually think that's what DHH is tacking into, too. With the, oh, that, yeah. The, I mean, it's like, it's, this is a real running system. And now I can like, yeah, like you can make it better now. And you can one understand of the, what it's the biggest things Rails did was to like marginalize databases, basically. And part of the reason for that was just that like, to get a web app up and running, you had to deal with database crap before you could even get, you know, your hello world on the page and just being able to be like, you know, you don't even need to start a database or write any schemas or do any of that. You just kind of like write a couple commands and now all of a sudden your thing is working was like shocking how, how fast you could get to something useful. And, and and the morale boost, the concomitant morale boost. All right, so Stephen, what are some of the other, I mean, some of the other things he talks about in terms of specific uh, breakthroughs or, or putative uh, silver bullets? Um, he talks about AI. He talks about expert systems. Do, how much have you been exposed to, to expert systems? Is that something you'd... Not directly, but I'm aware of the term. And I thought it was really interesting that he chose to partition AI into like AI and expert systems because... Yeah. I found the AI thing to be pretty on point for what we talk about with AI and then the expert system things to be like, oh yeah, that's right. That's the thing that people thought would be good or something. <laughs> but like, I haven't had any experience. I don't think I've ever used something that was like sold as an expert system. I've just, I heard about it. Very 80s and 90s, as, as Matt is saying in the chat. Yeah, and, and expert system. And I think that actually, you know, I think they're kind of due for a resurgence as I mean, in terms of like dealing with this kind of AI hallucination problem, you actually are going to need some uh, some expert training here, um, whether it's an expert system or not. I, I bet there's something some interesting lessons to be learned from expert systems. Um, but the, yeah, it was very much the fashion of the day. Where uh, was it was expert systems and a, a distinct from AI for sure. Um, what did you think about? Um, well, you got graphical programming and program verification. I'm eager to get your and automatic programming. I'm, I'm curious on your take on all three of these. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I think the last one is probably the one that I thought was mo like very accurate for today. Like I was just thinking copilot, copilot, copilot with the, you know, automatic shenanigans um and like also the AI stuff. But I don't specifically remember the graphics part that well to be honest with you. Oh, graphical the, programming, not graphics. Graphical programming. Yes. No, graphics programming. Yeah, like, like yeah. It's, it's one of those things. So like the only graphical programming thing I've ever seen to succeed is Scratch and maybe LabVIEW, if you consider that to be a success, graphical and programming. Uh, <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> but uh, like outside of that, you know, I definitely feel like uh, it definitely seemed to be sold as a thing that could make, you know, like it was kind of the precursor to no code is sort of I feel like the vibe was about how graphical programming was going to like fix everything. Um, but it's just not, it's just not there for like getting actual work done. Right. So, so I, I, so I feel old the... to me, but like a thing that was old enough that I still experienced that discussion, but I don't think anything, I don't think anybody, I, we'll see what gets launched tomorrow, but I don't think anybody's selling a graphical programming uh, thing as being the next productivity leap. So this, this felt outdated, but like in a more familiar way than some of the old. Okay, but you, but no, I was born but in 86 one. too, also as just a, a small, you know, from the perspective of, of, um, One of the things Brooks talks about is the flow chart stuff which is like 
really primitive attempt at graphical programming, I think. But mm. invented by von Neumann himself and that gang, but it, it was taught all through the 60s and into the early 70s. You know, flow yeah, flow and, and it's a terrible thing. And, and Brooks comes right out and nails it by saying software does not conform to 2D or 3D abstractions. Amen. I would I would say that um, you would struggle to find a software team today that didn't have somewhere a architecture diagram that was boxes and lines in an image of you know varying degrees of accuracy or potentially outdated. But like people do use images to confer uh, to communicate with each other about the shapes of things, and that was probably that was not necessarily true of 86. Like he's talking about the fact that you, you just didn't have the pixel real estate to be able to do that kind of thing. But like people, oh, do I think that people were trying too. hard to do it in 86 because the systems were smaller. I think people were actually trying hard to represent. I actually do think that people were trying to represent systems this way. Um, do you, Tom, do you Borland object vision? <laughs> Back in the day, uh, this is like there are a couple of these things, these graphical programming environments where we are going to like program by by visualizing. And you know, I agree with you about, about the diagram that people have, but they, those diagrams take different slices. And I, I don't think you can take any of those diagrams and use that to generate the system. I, I think Flo that the flowcharting was really taught as a kind of a necessary step for almost all programs. And and really, diagrams are a great great way to explain things, but they're not directly related to the code. It is certainly relative to like a schematic, where like when you have a schematic, that actually like th that is a there's a very important spatial representation. Uh, and actually, this future of coding podcast, Steve, they get uh, they are debating whether I shouldn't say debating. One of the hosts, uh, I believe it, it was Ivan, was like, no, no, I think I, I'm going to die on this hill that software has like spatial coordinates. I'm, I'm only exaggerating slightly. And the co-host is basically like, well, you're going to die on this hill because like, I'm going to show you that you like, like, prepare, prepare to meet your maker. Again, I'm, only ex I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. But the, I actually do think it's important that we, go, we don't have good, th th this idea of using a spatial representation is a very limited power. And Steve, I'm going to give you a hot, hot, hot take that's just going to get me blown up on the internet. I actually, I, I really question the utility of Scratch. Having watched all of my kids do it, um, they are, Scratch has got a super low ceiling, super low totally. ceiling. And then they don't know where to go. Like they, they right. bonk into the ceiling and they're like, I don't know how to like I can't, I can't connect this like thing I've made with this cat bouncing around with like the other software that I use and actually they go to Minecraft and they build things in Minecraft mm -hmm. totally. where the, where there is actually like there is it's it's like totally like frameworks versus libraries you know what I mean like you're, in Scratch you're super frameworky and then you're going super library in Minecraft where you can like and that the that has been more engaging for my own kids. And I'm not that like scratch is a net negative, but like, I think it's pedagogical right. utility is pretty limited to maybe, uh, just like 
add to the fire. Uh, note that I didn't say like was the best software in its class. I said this is the most successful example of this software being <laughs> written. So I agree with you. I do think there's a lot of things that Scratch gets really right, but the I mean kind of inherits the sins of small talk, right? Like can't get mm -hmm. out of that little box because you were too, you know, in the system as opposed to outside of the system. Like, yeah, like all that stuff and going to Minecraft and Redstone makes so much sense uh, for all of that. So yeah, I, de I definitely like agree that uh, maybe there's a little bit of uh, damning of faint praise going on there on my end. But I also feel that like this gets to like the fundamental problem that I feel like Brooks also hits on that if I'm going to make you 100x more powerful as a programmer, 100x more product product productive, I am almost certainly going to do it by really raising the level of abstraction. And if I raise the level of abstraction, I'm also going to give up some of that generality. I'm you're, you're going to you are going to lose. You're not going to be able to do it in any language. You're not going to be able to do it with any database. You're not going to be able to you know you're I, I'm going to make a bunch of decisions for you, and those things can be great. But then you you are losing more and more and more of the power of software. So you can do things quickly, but they are the things that I have preconceived of. And I think a lot of these things fall into this trap of like, yeah, okay, it does make me, you know, a, an order of magnitude more productive for the problem that you are envisioning me for. But the problem that you're envisioning me for is actually not the problem that I have. Um, which is certainly the, the the case with something like Scratch, and it's not going to surprise me at all if that's the case tomorrow as well. I just think it's like, have you seen Dark, Steve? Oh yeah, I am very familiar with Dark. Uh, Do you consider Dark to be graphical programming? It kind of is, isn't it? Sort of. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. I have to think about that for a second. It definitely suffers from the problems that we've been discussing. I don't know necessarily from like a the act of programming it. If I think about that way exactly. Uh, I'm mostly familiar with the like internal stuff rather than the actual like interface um, of Dark because they were in Rust and then they rewrote into F Sharp or whatever. Uh, right. So I had like looked at the Rust version um, relatively in depth, but have not done as much lately. Uh, it, I want to mention it, that people in yeah. the chat have been coming up with other good visual software systems that. Or I should say good in their domain, but maybe didn't break out and don't think of think a ton about. Uh, like Lineshawn says, Simulink, just like Simulink, a, you know, yeah, good example. Yeah. Although it's very narrow. Uh, Emily is referencing Hypercard, Hypercard, which is near and dear to my heart. Uh, totally. Literally, like I some of the first quote unquote conference talks I ever gave were as a kid about Hypercard programs to uh, some computer science professors. Uh, Pittsburgh, or Pennsylvania had a really good uh science program uh yada yada but uh i feel like there's one another one somebody mentioned that was very good too uh so in hypercard and simulink are both really good examples because they are content to confine the solution space a little bit of like all right i'm going to solve like a, a slightly more domain specific problem but then i'm I, then we can actually bring some of these tools to bear um which i think is kind of interesting in terms of like you like tone down the ambition a little bit and make it a little more uh, and sharpen it a bit. And then you've got something that can actually, because I think, I mean, like HyperCard was used to build all sorts of things. Um, but I think, yeah. okay, 
Four of these things, they uh, surely they are used beyond the original intent of the designers. I mean, I, I gotta think that HyperCard was used in places that the, its designers didn't intend. But well, I mean, HyperCard was like born out of an LSD trip, so I don't think that the designers <laughs> intended for there to be that much constriction on what you could do with it. But uh, yes. Yeah, like Mist being the most famous example, as Emily brings up, but like they thought it was gonna like replace the web. Like it was it was viewed by the creators as being very, very broad. Very expensive. Okay, never mind. Okay. Opposite of that. Uh well, Q, uh, this is where Tom would recommend what the doormouse said, just to learn that they were that all of computing owes its history to people who were dropping acid in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, then what, so another one they mentioned that is also uh, near and dear to, I think, our heart is uh, program verification. Yes. And again, this was done as kind of a, on the one hand, okay, Brooks is, uh, he says, I do not believe we're going to find the magic here. So like, this is not a single magical concept. But he does say it's like, there's like hope for this, like this can actually improve programs. And I think, you know, we, we've, with the TLA plus, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do that actually can we can be much more rigorous about the way we verify programs. Here's my super hot take on this. Uh, this is just types. Like we, uh, we, uh. The, the, the like revolution in program verification is not so much about what we think. It's almost kind of like the AI thing where like AI is perpetually just like what we can't do with computers, right? Like the definition keeps moving. A lot of the stuff that we do today would have been considered AI in like the sixties. It's the same thing with program verification. Like, the rise of, like, I think there's, huh. the history of type systems has been a lot up and down, I think, but I think in the current historical moment, we are on, we are in a spot where we started to find the sweet spot of type systems that are expressive enough to not get in our way as much, but also give us a lot of the benefits of program verifications. This is like, yeah, dependent types are another example that are a little further on this step uh, that Blaine has mentioned in the chat that I'm still not 100% sure is ever going to be real, but we'll see. But like that, the exact same problems that he talks about in this section are true of types. Basically, that's funny. True. And so, acknowledging so, the downsides too, right? Like, I don't think we'll find the magic. Verification is not about uh, program verification. Does not mean error-proof programs. There's no magic here. Mathematical proofs can also be faulty. It can reduce the testing load, but it can't eliminate it. Like, those are all statements that are absolutely true of types as well. Um, and yeah. Totally. What I love that idea of like you take someone from 1986 and take them to a time machine to current day and they're like, oh, you solved the formal verification problem. I just like I looked at this message that the compiler just generated and clearly you've solved it. It's like, no, no, that's just the type system. It's actually giving you a uh, that's that's a really interesting idea. Um, so, yeah, so, so those things. And then and then where, where did you net out on A.I.? Um, the I mean, the A.I., it, it's just amazing how current that discussion felt. Yeah, that's. I think that was probably one of my areas that felt most uh, correct, and I tweeted about it whenever I uh, read it a couple hours ago, and I got one or two good responses from people who had pointed out like that they kind of like think, yeah, it's it is true that I that it doesn't tell me what to think, but if I can quickly generate ten different options and choose between them, that still can help me clarify my thinking, even if it's not directly telling me what to do. And I thought that was a particular, um, I forget who at replied me oh. with that. So I'm sorry that I've forgotten in the moment. Maybe I'll find the link and put it in the show notes. But I thought that was an interesting comment on like a pushback on this that I think is an interesting idea from the current like AI stuff that we use. Um, but uh, definitely I have not really uh, used, I've used ChatGPT a little bit for funsies, but like I have not used any of the like programming assistant tools yet. 
because I tend to be a, a little bit of a, a laggard when it comes to adopting this kind of stuff. So I, I don't have a lot of practical experience, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I definitely, what he says here resonates with me in general. Totally. And then we, um, I, and we had, a, I think, a great discussion um, on, on the, the, the promise of large language models for software engineering and what it could mean. Um, and there's definitely stuff it could mean, but it's not as simple. It's just like, it is not a silver bullet. I think that, I think we can say that with, with some confidence. Yeah. Uh, and the, um, and so, so what have been the, we've hit on some of them, but are, are there any of the, the things that have been big step functions in your career that we've missed? So we, we talked, I mean, I think Rails was a big step function, right? I don't think I'm, I'm exaggerating that. I think it was, I think Rails is yeah. a big deal. I think... Uh, yeah. Matt says in the chat, GC, that actually yeah. is a very, yeah, and I definitely agree with that. Sorry, is that what you were going to say? Uh, no, but it's close enough, which is like, so I learned GW Basic and then like C and then C++ and Java was sort of my initial slate of languages I wrote stuff in. And then someone showed me Perl and specifically closures and I went like, holy crap. And I started churning out Perl code like far faster and got way more done than I was getting done in like late nineties C plus plus or, you know, those early, early Java's. And so that was like a personal step function. I don't know that that fits into like the history of computing and was true for everyone, but I kind of have this situation where I started with static typing and then went hardcore into dynamic typing for a while. And now I'm back on basically purely static typing. Yeah. Um, so it's, but like, because I think that the dynamic typing was giving me a step function over the static typing at the time. And then now I think that the static typing that exists today is giving me a step function over dynamic typing had been, um, but that's just like a personal thing more than something I'm willing to generalize to the industry at large. I mean, for whatever it's worth, that's my path too, right? That's like I, hardcore C and then like realizing like, oh, wow, JavaScript could be used for a bunch of these things, not just on the browser. And then realizing like, maybe that was actually a few too many things. Maybe we can, this Rust thing is pretty interesting. Yeah. So, and to kind I've, of like, bring that into the GC thing too. Like Patrick Walton has this really interesting uh, thing. And I hope I don't mis misrepresent what he said on this before, but it's like Java did, like as much as we did say Java didn't save the world like earlier in this, this uh, podcast, for example, like it did seriously eat into the market share of like application software for C and C++, right? Like, oh, for sure. Every problem? Yep. No, but like those used to be the default choice. You're building a desktop app, you write it in C or C++. And then in that time period, it moved to Java and GC was a very large part of that being true, right? Like for software that didn't need every single last bit of performance, it allowed a lot of people to get a lot of work done. Um, so, well, and that was my whatever it's good or bad. Well, no, but my first impression when writing Java was this is the end of C++ because this eliminates now, I mean, I didn't think of it this way at the time because I, didn't have, I had not read Brooks's paper moments before, but looking at it in hindsight, Java eliminated so much of the accidental complexity of C++ and distilled you to the essential complexity. Um, of course, it generated accidental complexity of its own. But I'm like, this is going to be the end of C++. Well, why would you write in C++? If, and of course, I underestimated the, 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 the C++ diehards uh, that they would definitely uh, have their own resurgence. But yeah, I think Java was a very big deal in that regard. And I mean, Java made the mistake of overshooting a bit, but it was a very big deal. And then, I mean, I think we didn't talk about cloud computing, but cloud computing is a huge deal for accidental complexity around infrastructure, right? Um, I think 
uh, hard to argue. Uh, orchestration feels like we haven't yet had. I mean, Kubernetes is super complicated, and I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that Kubernetes is in the book, as Paul Erdős used to say, of proofs that he felt to be sufficiently elegant that they'd be recorded in the book of the supreme fascist, which is his name for God. I don't feel like the Kubernetes is in the book. I'm not, I'm not sure though. Yeah, we'll see. I kind of feel like, you know, Apple never like releases something, but they, or the, sorry, never releases. They're never the first, like the pro, like the iPhone was not the first cell phone that was like, or even smartphone, but it just like became product defining. Like okay. I have not used Kubernetes and anger enough in production. Like I kind of got into that whole working on a programming language thing around the time that that became sort of uh, the cool kid thing to do for web apps. But I feel like I feel like there's going to be a sequel or a second system that comes out that makes it better. But I don't know what that is. And I'm not willing to bet that's true. So like for for everything, but just kind of is it coming like from Apple sure. specifically? No, no, but just like that okay. sort of like oh, okay. an outside somebody, not like not like them turning it like it's not like kubernetes 3 or whatever is going to be like the best right. like right, some right, outsider right. seeing the space and then reworking all of that stuff to be on some sort of simpler or better primitives uh we will see oh yeah and i well because i think that these like lurches that happen i mean they do have some things that have that they have in common one is that when they they're not being, first of all, they're not being pre-announced as 10x or 100x uh, improvements. They are, they're kind of pulling together, I'm just like talking, thinking about the things that we've been talking about, Java, Rails, Rust, uh, I mean, Detroit's for that matter, where you're pulling together a bunch of existing ideas and, and kind of packaging them up in a way that is, is expressing their, their usefulness and eliminating a bunch of accidental complexity but done in a way that like the creators really did it for themselves. Java was done for Gosling, uh, more or less for Oak um, in the Setop project. Uh, Rails clearly done for for DHH. Um, again, we talked about Unix and and certainly. And so I, I feel like it's there's something. These things have something in common. There's some properties that that these big step functions have in common as individual technologies. And then there are these other step functions like Internet open source uh, distributed version control, which feel like they're even more broad-based and are even more radical over time, but just take a really, it's not like there's some grand reveal for, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the internet. It was more like this is something that was available and then became more ubiquitous and a bunch of things unlocked that. I don't know. In terms of like these, these indisputably a huge step function, but took a long, long time to unfold. Yeah, yeah. yeah sharing uh, software was was always a big part of the buy versus build, you know, if you could get it for free. Um, but the internet made sharing the me mechanics of sharing so much easier. Totally. Yeah. And then distributed version control, even easier. You could actually like, yeah. you're not downloading tarballs from SourceForge or what did we used to do? Tom, what did we do before get Fresh meat. I don't remember. Yeah. SourceForge. Source <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I have some right. books that publish the software in the back of the book. Right. There you go. Invite only BBSs. <laughs> um, the discords JB of their day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, JBK said something in the chat that uh, 
is reminded me of one of my favorite quotes actually from the paper. Uh, JBK says, I don't know if it counts for programming productivity, but going way back, what about the whole concept of pipes as an operating system concept? And yeah. in the ADA section, Brooke says, operating systems loudly decried in the 60s for their memory and cycle costs have proved to be an excellent form in which to use some of the MIPS and cheap memory bytes of the past hardware surge. And like, you know, having people and companies argue like, I don't need an operating system because it uses too much, you know, resources. It's like not <laughs> worth it or whatever is like a thing that we just now take for granted as a tool that we build software on to be productive. And like, you know, an OS is itself a platform. Um, yeah. That has a bunch of, it turns out a bunch of, of useful uh, things to, associated with it. I mean, things like I mean, McElroy was obviously a, a big lurch forward. And yeah, Matt, it was funny. I was just going to mention the same thing. Have you heard about this? With the the uh, Knuth McIlroy showdown, oh, yeah. Steve. Yeah, exactly. Where Knuth writes a you know a, a five page algorithm, and Knuth writes it as a pipeline, which just feels like um, I've always thought was. Uh, I think practitioners everywhere, even though people are right to point out that like, well, that's kind of that. That wasn't really the spirit of that, and. It's like I don't care. I just find it very entertaining. Uh, as, I, as, as, a, as a as a practitioner, I am entertained. Brian, want to jump on the opportunity to to correct your pronunciation? It's McElroy. It's McElroy. Thank you, yeah. Tom. It's uh, is it misspelled? <laughs> no, it's just a weird spelling. It's a weird spelling. All right, McElroy. Thank you, Tom. You know this. Listen, a, a an important uh, theme in this podcast is correcting my pronunciation <laughs> for essentially everything. As we've learned, I, I mispronounce absolutely everything. Well, if it's like a, a uh, yes, no, I'm, listen, you can pry fig out of my cold dead fingers, Ian. Um, the, um, well, it's been great. This is, uh, Steve, thank you very much for, uh, for being willing to jump in here as philosopher um, and podcast host. Always podcast host. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No, no, really appreciate it. And uh, and uh, Ian and and Tom and Alex, thank you. Sorry that the uh, and uh, thanks to, to everyone for all of your contributions. A lot of interesting stuff in the chat. We're going to be uh, definitely interested to see um, the 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 magic bullets of our the silver bullets of our future. I'm sure there will be uh, will be some, and I'm sure they will be somewhat valuable. But I think we can. I think broadly stand by a lot of the conclusions here um, that that Brooks made. Um, I mean, coming up on what like uh, forty years ago. I mean, this is this is pretty old to be able to make things that are actually remain really quite current. Very very impressive. For sure. All right. Thanks everyone. We'll see you next time.